to FEPS Talks, the podcast series of the Foundation for European Progressive Studies. Find out more about us on feps-europe.eu. Hello, my name is Lance Loandor, Secretary General of FEPS, the Foundation for European Progressive Studies. This is FEPS Talks, and we are presenting um, interesting interviews about uh, various dimensions of European politics and society. And today I have the pleasure to be in Milan and meeting Professor Maurizio Ferreira, who is a professor of political science at the University of Milan, but at the same time a leading expert of European social policy. Professor Ferreira, about one year ago you launched a debate about the concept of a European social union. Can you sum up to what directions this discussion has been going in the last one year and some of the main conclusions? Sure. Let me first say that we decided to launch this debate because the idea of a European Social Union uh, was already or had been already in the air for some time. Uh, a book with um, lots of uh, reflections on this had appeared uh, in 2017, um, edited by Frank van den Broeke and others, and that was very interesting but very academic. Mm. Uh, and then after the publication of that book, the European Pillar of Social Rights was adopted, and so we decided that it was the right moment uh, to try and uh, revive the European Social Union debate in the light of the adoption of the European pillar um, and with a view to making, to flesh out the practical implications of the general and a little bit philosophical or sociological and economical idea of a European Social Union. So we invited a number of speakers to reflect on a possible road map. And uh, the first um, agreement that every, every one of the participants uh, came to is that the European pillar of social right is going to be a, the fundamental milestone and the overall anchor of this project of implementing the idea of a European social union. What would a European Social Union be in practice? Uh, certainly not an attempt at federalizing the welfare state. Uh, some, or better, all historical federations through time, even if more slowly than unitary states, have uh, succeeded in uh, federalizing at least some components of uh, social protection, most notably the big schemes of uh, social insurance. Uh, but we are not really thinking that uh, the European Union will be either able or even willing to uh, have that destination in mind. Because we already have the fairly articulated and robust and generous domestic national welfare state systems um, and the problem is not that of uh, fusing them together into something uh, which uh, is unitary at the European Union level in the way in which the 
European, the Economic and Monetary Union mm -hmm. uh, has done, but rather to uh, establish, to construct the right habitat. Mm -hmm. uh, one participant to the debate, Anton Hemmerich, calls this a holding environment, meaning a framework of institutions, of regulations, of practices that may help the national systems of uh, social protection, number one, to adapt to the various challenges uh, that are uh, linked to the great transformations of uh, the economy, the labor market, society, and they have to adapt in a coordinated way so that uh, this adaptation is not going to be uh, a uh, competition, a downward competition, mm -hmm. but it's going, but it's a, a, an adaptation which promotes convergence towards shared objectives and shared standards. You know, maintaining legitimate diversi diversities, but sharing the, over the overall um, course of direction. So this is the first function of this new holding environment. The second function is that of managing the mutual opening of domestic social protection systems uh, in order to virtually, virtuously accommodate free movement, mm -hmm. to uh, comply with the general principles of non-discrimination, um, and to um, uh, put in place uh, a system of coordination of social security uh, regimes at the national level, which is uh, able to generate more movement, but also more cohesion. Because the system that we have now um, may run the risk of becoming divisive if the flows of free movement and of mobility concentrate in only one direction. Mm. Okay, this poses problems with the, to the countries of uh, destination, but also to the countries of origin. And these externalities, either positive or negative, cannot be left to uh, mutual adjustments or to uh, you know, the logic of, uh, of the market alone. They must be managed by the very institution which has made free movement possible, which is the European Union. Exactly. So whenever the European Union creates externalities, potentially negative externalities, at the functional level, but also at the political level, it is the responsibility of the Union to actually counteract these ex externalities if they are negative, and to redistribute externalities, the, the gains of externalities, if they are positive. Right, but I understand this is more or less the theory in a yes. nutshell of what is behind the concept. Would you give some concrete examples of what new elements or new proposals would help delivering this social union? Because probably some elements already exist, but yes. in a new framework, these older elements would also gain a new meaning. Sure. For example, talking about uh, mobility. Uh, the European Union is seen as a force, more or less gentle, sometimes uh, not so gentle, that opens up the borders or the boundaries of national social protection, 
And since the welfare state originally built on closure, on fixed and stable boundaries that could actually uh, were instrumental for forging social sharing ties and solidarities from a cultural point of view and were also necessary to uh, manage the positive and good, good uh, and, uh, and negative effects of cooperation inside the nation states through a centralized system of management, precisely the national welfare state. Um, now the European Union is, as I said, is, is seen as a force of destructuring, of an opening which creates negative consequences, especially for those who stay, uh, for stayers, um, which who often perceive mobile workers in the more general context of migration as uh, people that come and take advantage of uh, national solidarity arrangements without necessarily giving a, 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 an equivalent contribution. So the European Union has to take steps in order to compensate in some way mm -hmm. the, the perceived, but in some cases also actual losses which are incurred by, say, local communities when um, there is uh, very high and very concentrated uh, mobility so that they understand that the European Union is also a protective force and not only a uh, destructuring force. Mm -hmm. The European Union, as we know, already uh, has a lot of uh, programs, initiatives, resources, for example, the European Social Fund, uh, that are targeted precisely to the stayers, to territories, hmm? to people that do not move, they stay where they are and they need protections, they need uh, services, they need uh, uh, childcare. Okay, then my proposal here would be, first of all, to channel these funds in a much more direct and visible uh, way so that the stayers fully perceive the uh, help and care that can come from the European Union and maybe even uh, establish some new funds that are directly connected with the fact of mobility. For example, helping local communities to expand or strengthen or to um, empower or, no, I think strengthen is the right concept, local social infrastructures in mm -hmm. order to face uh, the uh, consequences in terms of waiting lists or in terms of the potential downgrading of quality of local social services. So the Europe that protects is a very important concept, but not only in the sense of the external borders, maybe not even primarily, but in terms of social conditions, social cohesion, social standards. Exactly. Another, another example would be the, and we already are talking about that, the European unemployment benefit insurance or reinsurance, because, again, we know that uh, the creation of the Economic and Monetary Union has subtracted from the member states some levers that were available before, some instruments that were available before to manage and to respond to the famous asymmetric shocks. Mm -hmm. Now, having lost 
these domestic instruments to respond to uh, asymmetric shocks, for example, a sudden uh, rise in unemployment. Um, and again, because the European Union has opened up, has created the Economic and Monetary Union, so the level of responsibility for compensating um, domestic national member states or governments that have lost their own specific domestic resources to respond to an asymmetric shock must be reinsured or insured so that they don't have to take um, the entire burden of responding to the crisis while other countries maybe even take advantage of it. Mm -hmm. So there, I, the basic idea behind this this um, project of establishing a social union as a counterpart uh, to the economic and monetary union is that the economic and monetary union has generated a number of cross-border, cross-national um, uh, effects because of deep interdependence that we are increasingly losing the possibility of uh, imputing with a reliable degree of precision which effect is caused by which type of level of government or which type of provision. We are not sure that Italian unemployment is or may not be related to some policies or decisions which were taken by the German government or by the EU government. It has become virtually impossible or let's say very difficult to um, impute with a high and reliable degree of precision who is responsible for what. Mm. And so this idea that we can have a, an economic and monetary union that produces this network, this web of cross-border externalities, and that we can respond to this situation by doing the homeworks, I think that it's, some, it's, a, it's an approach which is doomed to fail, mm. because there are common housework, housework, exactly. houseworks that we have to, to make. Exactly. Um, very, very interesting comment. Um, let me ask the following. You have seen in the last 20, 30 years many rounds of debates about social Europe in different phraseology. Mm -hmm. I heard you last year speaking in Florence about this, that there was a social dimension, Europe 2020, all different stages, Lisbon strategy, not to forget about it. Um, how does the current discussion about the social union compare to these previous stages? Is there an evolution of various ideas recycled or deepening, reappearing? Well, of course, there's both. There's uh, a a, the reconfirmation of certain broad objectives and certain, uh, also certain, the, the, the usefulness of certain tools um, that uh, have uh, lost traction uh, since we started this, these discussions in the early 2000s. So I, I'm thinking of the famous open method of coordination, which mm -hmm. is now being, you know, uh, uh, pointed to as something that, that hasn't worked or that cannot work, of course, it must be enhanced. But it, I think it has proven that it can work. Mm -hmm. it, it needs to be updated. It, need, it needs to be brought in line with the new 
constellation of problems, uh, but uh, it still remains a useful tool in the overall menu of uh, tools available for the European Social Union. Uh, European citizenship is uh, another institution that uh, we uh, were very much discussing um, in the early 2000s with the hope of being able to attach to the European Union citizenship a social component. To some extent, this social component uh, has arrived through the adoption of, of, uh, of many social directives and the expansion of the social acquis, but now we can we can be more ambitious precisely because we have the European pillar of social rights. Mm -hmm. And that can become a, a, an engine for the enhancement of European Union citizenship as such. One of the practical, very practical thing that uh, we propose in the, in the debate is, well, why instead of just uh, issuing a, a, a purple uh, or burgundy passport as the symbol of EU citizenship, don't we issue a European social card or social solidarity card, which brings together all the cards that are already available hmm, and that are used for, uh, you know, for the purpose of facilitating the exercise of social rights for mobile workers, but why don't we use that also, at least symbolically, for filtering in some way the access of all those programs at the national level which are co-funded by the European Union? Why don't we ask people, I think they would be proud of doing that, you know, to exhibit their European social card when here in Lombardy, for example, they apply for um, the unemployment, the special unemployment benefit that the Lombard region issues, okay, let's ask beneficiaries to take out of their wallet the European social card, I call it like this, it could be the European social solidarity card, I'm sure people would be proud, and it, they would be able to touch social mm -hmm. Europe in the same way as they can touch the monetary Europe when they use the banknotes or the coins. So, uh, you know, uh, politics, uh, social cohesion, legitimation is also the result of these very small, ordinary uh, life uh, details. Okay? I, I very much agree with that. Uh, the, the meaning that the social model is part of the European identity. It's probably best phrased through the concept of the social rights. But while in the last four or five years the discussion was dominated by the European pillar of social rights, there was much less talk about social investment. And that previously was um, introduced um, also at the European level. Um, are you an enthusiast or are you a skeptic about no, social investment? I am still an enthusiast, as I was from the very beginning. Uh, I just agree with some of the critics that say that social investment is not an alternative to mm. social protection, because there was this risk yes, a of, fake over, yes, of overemphasizing the potential of social investment at the detriment of social protection and even you know, basic uh, safety net solidarity. So I still think that social investment is a key function that must be promoted, encouraged by the European Union and also co-promoted and even co-funded. Mm. 
And let me say perhaps the most innovative, um, one of the most innovative concepts that has been at least mentioned at the end of the European Social Union debate and that uh, I am now going to develop in, an, in another uh, European research project together with Frank van den Broeke, the idea of European social guarantees. I see the European social guarantee as a new architecture that can perform several uh, functions at the same time. Mm -hmm. First of all, it can uh, link up the various levels which are relevant for the production and for the exercise of social rights. The European Union level that um, may adopt uh, binding directives that even prior to that may agree or adopt um, general principles, like in the case of the, of the social pillar. The national level, which is of course remains key because it, even when there are binding directives, uh, these need to be transposed into national legislation. And then it is the national legislation which confers to uh, a social right its hard component. It's uh, subjective, it's individual, it's justiciable. But then also the regional and local levels, because regions may not be able to legislate a right, but they do have powers in certain countries to launch specific regional uh, programs uh, which actually deliver even individual benefits. The only difference between these regional social rights is that they're not uh, hard. There's no dedicated budget. If the region uh, you know, uh, consumes all the resources allotted, then there is no right anymore. You know, it's, yeah. a, it's, an, it's, a, it's on a first-come, first-served basis. Yeah. But regions are still important. Plus, for the service component of social rights, healthcare, social care, uh, education, training and retraining, even family, work-life balance uh, services, active aging, for all these policies that have to do with new risks and new needs which uh, you know, are relatively di different from the standard risks and needs of the 20th century, uh, what is essential is that hard rights are accompanied by dedicated infrastructures that facilitate the actual fruition, the actual exercise of rights where people live, at, mm. you know, in the, in the context of life of people. People need good quality schools, good quality hospitals, the availability of social care services in the area where they live. Okay? And that is not guaranteed by traditional hard social rights attached to the national level only. Mm. Because these are... Uh, rights that can easily turn into dead letter uh, declarations which have no substance. You know, people from Calabria uh, must move to Lombardy to seek good quality healthcare because the, quali the, the quality of the local healthcare system is very bad and they do not have any 
you know, any resource to uh, voice their dissatisfaction about that. So my view of the social guarantee, which mm-hmm. might become the, the, the key and maybe prevailing predominant uh, instrument for the European Social Union in certain domains, in certain sectors, is, okay, the European Union uh, sets the general principles. They are maybe just aspirational rights, manifesto rights, as some people call them, but they do make a difference because they set targets and they also shape expectations of what at some point needs to be implemented. Then we have some, in some cases, we have binding uh, directives at the EU level, which must be transposed at the national level. But then, when we go down from the national level, there is where we need in uh, this facilitating, this new array of facilitating instruments that uh, guarantee that uh, rights, especially rights to services, can be uh, obtained with high quality standards and that's where the European Union can intervene once more because it has or should have funds, for example, to promote the uh, uh, strengthening or the launching of social investment programs Yes, which are localized because social investments must be localized because labor markets have different features in different areas. Mm. So uh, uh, skilling, reskilling, training need to be tailored, at least to some extent, to the particular features of the lo- local labor market. Yes, I'm sure this will be taken into account in the end game of the MFF negotiations when the final shape and size of the European Social Fund and other instruments um, will be seen. But what actually is also on the agenda of the new commission is the concept of the child guarantee. And I think it connects very well with yes. what you just explained about uh, the concept of the social guarantee. Do you think this is a hopeful uh, no, initiative? I think, it's, it's, yeah, I think it is a hopeful initiative. I think there is a lot of, if we look at surveys, there is a lot of popular support for this. Uh, in a recent project of mine, in a survey for 10 countries, we have asked the question, to respondents of national samples, would you be prepared to um, support uh, a program funded at the EU level for helping disadvantaged and vulnerable children? Actually, the question was all children. Mm -hmm. And uh, the answer was uh, yes, with proportions higher than 60% in all member states, including northern member states. And the, the, the support remained even, with, even when the question specified that that might imply, imply greater contributions on the side of member states. So that this would not be a free lunch, but that it would have to be funded by uh, more um, revenues on the side of the EU. So the, the potential for supporting such a measure is there, and it might be the occasion to experiment with a replica of the youth guarantee with greater ambitions. Mm-hmm. You, know, you know, setting standards, setting up uh, systems of monitoring and evaluation, um, uh, 
launch or uh, activate processes of, if necessary, naming and shaming, as in the open method of coordination, or at least, you know, encouragements and inducements right. that um, uh, in some way shape the policies and the decisions of the of the member states. And we might even attach that to a, a binding directive at some point. Yes, what you said about the populist approach is very, very interesting because it seems that uh, the general population is probably much more supportive of um, the idea that you need to link solidarity with the European Union than the national political elites. Absolutely. Absolutely. This is something... Uh, which I think is very important. It's, it's, very, it's something that we should really reflect on very carefully. Uh, in our project, we found that while uh, there are consistent, significant majorities that support um, inter-country, inter inter-member states, cross-national redistribution, but also interpersonal redistribution, such, in, such as in the case of... Uh, uh, a EU fund uh, helping all uh, vulnerable children, the elites are much less uh, ready to undertake, uh, to, you know, to proceed along this, this, uh, this road. We made a, a, an elite survey in which we asked representative samples of national members of parliament, and then we compared the degrees of support that these members of parliament uh, gave to the, to the same measures enhancing forms of uh, European Union-based solidarity and the degree of support tends to be much lower, especially, and I must uh, be clear on this, on the side of the northern member states. Mm -hmm. The gap is very wide in countries such as Germany or Sweden. Now, uh, German elites have always, you know, uh, told us um, that um, there was a limit uh, to their readiness to share because they had a, an electoral constraint. Mm -hmm. Our voters are not ready yet or are not ready, full stop, to share. That doesn't really seem to be the case. Hmm? Uh, there is much more potential for European Union solidarity than meets the eye, and certainly much more than is told us by those very elite of uh, publics, domestic publics, such as uh, in Germany or in uh, the northern uh, member states, that are supposed to be anti-solidaristic. That is not the case. So we, I wonder, we wonder, how come? Why this gap? What kind of constraints operate at the elite level so that these elites do not exploit or build on the potential support for a more solidaristic and more cohesive European Union? I do not have a, an answer, but I... I, I know from, you know, from political science that elites tend to be, of course, sensitive to uh, issues of consensus and of electoral support, but they are also uh, sensitive to 
ideas and especially uh, paradigms for interpreting developments that may become hegemonic for reasons that have nothing to do with what the people want, just to simplify. And I think that that might be the case for the elites of a certain member states, that just they assume that there is no electoral space for doing certain initiatives which they think are not correct. Because within their own paradigm, that particular option is, in their mind, going to create problems that they're not prepared to face. Maybe just the building or reasoning on the basis of a some ungrounded mm -hmm. diagnosis or maybe even some dogma. We are all mm -hmm. dogmatic in, to, to some extent. But I think that elite, uh, especially European elites, because they are enmeshed into this multi-level polity and the multi-level polity has a lot of pulls and pushes. So they should be very, very cautious in uh, not challenging the dogmas that uh, uh, maybe they, they, they have because of the specific cultural or even academic tradition of their own, uh, of their own um, country of origin. I think the conclusion is that if uh, there is a deficit the European Union must address in the coming period, it's primarily the solidarity deficit. It is. Uh, Professor Ferreira, I have to thank you for um, your thoughts and for this conversation. And um, unfortunately, we have no more time today, but I would like to see you continuing this discussion about the social union, the pillar of social rights, and European level solidarity in the coming period in Brussels as well. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you for your attention. If you found our conversation interesting, do not hesitate to share it on social media with the hashtag FEPSTalks. More is yet to come. Stay tuned. <laughs>